How is everyone this morning? It's great to be able to look out and see some faces instead of uh, three or four rather disinterested faces, as has the case been in the last year. Russell and, and Jason there. <laughs> I'm only joking. They've been very, very patient and, and gracious with us all uh, as, we've, as we've set to, uh, or as I've been preaching here over the last, whatever, how long has it been now? Seven, eight months, is it? Anyways, um, a number of years ago, um, a group of fellas went up to Belfast, up to the um, Irish Christian Men's ICM, I think it's Irish Christian Men's Association, is that right? I don't know, ICM anyways they're called, or it could be. No, it's the IMC actually. And um, two years ago, I think uh, Michael Reeves preached, no, three years ago, and then two years ago, um, Don Carson preached on Colossians. And I was really taken by it, and it was the first time really I'd given much, well, any really deep thought or perhaps I should, on this book, Colossians. I was amazed at how deep and how rich it is. And so when I was asked to, um, to do a standby sermon, I thought it might be good to do one on Colossians. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a superb book. It, just a couple of general background notes on Colossians. Um, it's written, one of the letters written by Paul in prison. And a chap called Epaphras came to him who was a bit worried about the state of the church in Colossae. Now, Paul hadn't planted that one. Um, but there was all sorts of um, cultural influences beginning to come into the church, mixtures of, of Jewish traditions, ceremonialism, asceticism, don't touch, don't handle, don't do this, don't do that. There were strange Greek philosophies coming in, talks about mysterious knowings, knowledge and philosophies, um, a dollop of angel worship, and Epaphras was worried, so he came to Paul just looking for a bit of advice. So we're going to look at today the response that Paul gave him in this passage um, so that he could go back encouraged and encourage the church. But first, let's uh, throw up a quick prayer to the Lord. Um, Father, we just thank you that uh, we're able to meet here this morning, this second Sunday of relative freedom. Um, yeah, it's just so great to be in church again, Lord, to, to see familiar faces, to hear familiar voices. Um, to know that we're all one family and that uh, one day we'll be hearing those faces, seeing those faces and hearing those voices in heaven itself. Uh, we have a little taste of it here today, Lord, and we just thank you, for, um, thank you for bringing us the other side of this lockdown, uh, relatively sane, um, holding our gaze and our fix on you, Lord, and encourage us to keep this up. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first off, I just want to ask you a question um, so that it's, you mull it in your, in your brain, it's going around inside you. What would you consider as your real identity? What would you consider as your real identity? I know when I was in college, um, I went in kind of young, so maybe I was a bit foolish, but I used to always fantasize about being a professional basketball player. Um, and when I was in college, in my little room, I had this huge, big, it took up half the wall, it must have been six foot by two foot poster of a guy called Dr. J. Now, I don't know, has anyone familiar with Dr. J? His name was Dr. J, or sometimes Dr. Dunk, and his name was Julius Irving. And I used to just lie on my bed there in the evening times after class and just gaze up at him and just want to live where he lived, play in the NBA. I wanted to, to wear the clothes he wore. And even in our training amongst myself and my friends, we even tried to speak like these guys, you know? We wouldn't talk about running from one end of the basketball court to the other. We would talk about going from coast to coast. Or we wouldn't ask one another to go down and play some basketball. We'd say, hey, do you want to shoot? 
Oops. It was all rather silly, but we thought it was so cool at that time. And to be honest with you, a few of us were besotted by this whole idea of being NBA players. And our studies were suffering. Our lives were suffering. And thankfully, my genetics and my abilities weren't in line with my dreams, and um, I never realized my dream. But sometimes I was thinking, you know, that wasn't too bad when I was in college. It didn't lead me to too much damage. But there are some pretty strange things going on in the world today regarding I this issue of identity, of um, what do you see as your essence or your true self, your core identity. Uh, there was a 69-year-old guy in Holland in 2018 who went to the court, and he wanted to be identified as a 49-year-old because his doctor said that he had a body of a 49-year-old. And he thought, as you know, people can change their gender, why not change my age? He reckoned it would give him a better chance of getting work and hooking up seemingly on Tinder. So thankfully it failed. So that man now is three years older, so that makes him 73, is it? And um, it's a good thing that happened. There are numerous cases on the internet. One woman who wanted to be a cat and um, stuff like that, she sued. I'm not sure how she did, but anyways. Now, there are many different people here in the room today, and I'm looking around, there's different skin colors, different creeds, different beliefs. Uh, well, we've all come from different creeds and beliefs, but we're all sort of unified now because we're in Christ. But looking around, we can still see there's an awful lot of individuality in this room. It could be your gender, it could be your age, it could be your race, your interests, your hobbies, your, your um, culture. But essentially, what I want to ask you today is, when you peel those layers away from your identity, what's your core identity? What's your essence? Um, maybe it's someone like I was who was passionately in pursuit of sport, sporting excellence. It might be someone who's passionately pursuing money, or maybe that job promotion. Um, it could be someone who's just pursuing a life of pleasure. Or maybe it's you really look at your own identity as um, social media. How do per people perceive you on social media? And in fairness, none of these things really have any basis in reality or in truth, in my opinion, having come to a knowledge of Christ. Christ and God is the ultimate truth. So all these other things in our lives are not the reality. And sometimes it's really, really difficult to see that. I've been there, I've been caught up in it. And we still, even to this day, are still caught up in little things, our little fantasies. Well, Paul today in this passage really zones in on this whole idea of what is your identity? And if your identity is in Christ, how should you think? How should you act? So Paul, I think, has three things to say about uh, this thing, uh, this matter about your identity in, in, in Christ. We look at the first four verses. And in the first four verses, Paul, what he wants to do is he wants to paint a picture of what it means to be a Christian. He wants to uh, paint this picture of, of, of a Christian as someone who is so much delighting in what God has done for them in their lives that it impacts them greatly because God has done so much for us in our lives. And God has called us by his, the very title that he called his son, Beloved. So verses one to four kind of paint this picture of elevating the Christian up to such a status that he looks at everything else and he counts them as rubbish. So we read in one to four, when you, if or since, as some Bibles might um, translate, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, 
not on things that are on earth. Verse 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. These four verses are deep. At Jesus' baptism and transfiguration, can anyone remember the words which Jesus spoke to the Son? He used the same word twice. He said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Michael Reeves, in his excellent book, The Good God, writes, the Father so delighted in his Son that his love for him overflowed so that the Son might be the firstborn among many sons. And again, Michael writes to dispute this idea that people have of our God as being a sort of a, a selfish, greedy God that wants to load all this glory and adoration onto himself. He says, this God, he says, does not begrudge having someone else beside him. He enjoys it. He has always enjoyed showering his love on his Son. And in creating, he rejoices to shower it on the children he loves through the Son. Isn't that wonderful? The tender love that the Father and the Son share for one another is expressed in Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Remember the title he called his Father? He called him Abba, Father, which is dear Father. It's a very personal, affectionate term. And we can also share this term, or we can also be called, or we can also call our Father Abba, Father, because of sharing. We also share in the love that Christ has poured out through the Son, and he pours out on us. The term father in the scriptures up to the New Testament times really was used as a term for Israel as a father. Um, rather impersonal, but personal at the same time, certainly not as personal as Abba. And any good pious Jew in those days would never have dared to call Yahweh his personal father. But yet we can. Why is this? Well, Jesus made the father known to us in a personal way, didn't he? After all, Jesus himself says at the end of the high priestly prayer in John 17, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. So just as the Son benefits from the Father's love and affections, so we who are in Christ, as Ephesians says over and over and over again, or as Paul says here in verse 3, who are hidden with God or with Christ in God, we can benefit from the same love. We are hidden because Christ's life is now our life. Think about that. Christ's life is now our life. It's difficult to understand, isn't it? But yet Paul says it's, it's true. It's an objective truth. Now, we mightn't feel this all the time. We mightn't feel this much of the time. But Paul says Christ's life is our life. It also means that you have a different identity, one that's in line with reality, not with my dreams of being another Dr. J. It also means that you are beloved, the same title he gave the Son. You're a child of God, and you're a brother of Christ. Hebrews 2 is interesting. Verse 11 says, But the one who makes one holy, and those who are made holy, are of the same family. Now listen. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
Imagine that. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And so because we are children of God, because we are beloved, because we are child's brothers, we should recognize that this should be the core of our identity. When the other layers of our identity, our race, our gender, our interests, our passions, our, well, not our passions, but our, our hobbies, when they're peeled away, this should be the reality that's left. And this should be our essence. This should be what fuels us, what gives our life meaning and purpose, and gives us victory over sin. So Paul can say in verse 1 and 2, he says, If or since then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your minds, he says, on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So God, in effect, has raised us with Christ into the heavenly realms in a sense that we're kind of now living there. We're living in the right place. This should be a major defining factor of our identity. If we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we should live where Christ lives. We should live in the right place. Now, we do live on this planet for a certain amount of years, but in effect what Paul is saying is that we have been raised up with Christ and we can, in a sense, live in the heavenly realms with Christ in the presence of God. It's a place which is fitting for Christ's brothers, isn't it, and sisters. So the meaning of seek here, when Paul says seek the things that are above, it doesn't kind of have the flavor of the meaning search for them as if, you know, you haven't got them. What Paul is getting at here, or what the language is getting at here is that these things that we are to seek, we already have them. These things that are above. Christ has won them on the cross for us. Things like holiness, redemption, life itself. No, what Paul is getting at is that the believer should, should look, should orientate himself or herself daily at these things that are above. These things that Christ has won for us. Think about them. Gaze on them with longing daily. You might have heard the saying, you are what you look at, or you are what you do. It's very true. Our lives often seem really busy, and, and I mean, we all hold up our hands to this. And Sometimes, though, if you were to really sit down and examine where you spend all your time, um, you might be a bit surprised. You might even feel a little bit disappointed. All those hours of lounging on the couch, watching Netflix, or flicking through a screen, watching your uh, social media uh, stuff, or just listening to silly music maybe, or not all music is silly, but you know what I mean, just listening endlessly to things which really, you know you should get up and do something more constructive and you don't. <laughs> We've all been through it, haven't we? It's almost like you're hypnotized by them and they are very seductive. Things of this earth. But Paul says we become, or what he's getting at here in our identity is we become what we look at. Paul says we should set our eyes Look at Christ. What you look at, really, will leave a mark on your soul. You mightn't think that, especially when you're young. But as you get older and you look back at all the stuff that you spend time with during your life, you can see, really, that an awful lot of the time you've got your priorities wrong. It's very hard to tell this to a young person, isn't it? That only comes with experience. We do spend a lot of time in idle stuff. But Paul says, seek the things that are above. What you look at will matter. What you spend your free time at will matter. It will change you if you let it control you. 
Now, Paul is not saying in these verses that you should look at these things in some way and then go and, and strain yourself to try and, and, and follow or emulate what Christ has done. Paul is saying that it's in the daily looking that we become like Christ. Everything is done for us. We don't have to heave and put our shoulder to the wheel to work out our salvation. We just follow and look at our older brother who's gone before us. When Jesus was raised, Paul says, we were raised and we are in him. Romans 6, which we looked at a number of weeks ago, verse 3 and 4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we are to walk in newness of life. New identity, new life. As we gaze on him, as we behold him, not physically, but in faith, with eyes of faith, we find that our affections for him, our love for him grows stronger, don't we? We can't but help it. When we spend time in prayer and, the, and in the word, we get to know God better. Our affections grow stronger and stronger for him. And our affections for sin, accordingly, get weaker and weaker. They're not gone. They still tempt us. But they don't have control over us. We find that we hate them more and more. This is sanctification. This is what the Spirit is doing in our lives. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, referring to Moses. Remember when Moses met God on Sinai and he came down and he had to put the veil on his face? Well, Paul writes, and we, that's brothers and sisters in this room, and the Colossians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit's role in the Trinity is our sanctification. So if we're now living in a right place, we should be looking at new things, the things that are above. And Paul now turns from, to verse 4 to our future, and he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This conforming to the image of our older brother Christ is happening gradually now, we realize that. But one day it will reach its climax when we will behold him with our physical eyes, not with our eyes of faith. And this glory will be so great that we will be given new physical bodies as well. John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So Paul, having showed that our identity is in Christ, our lives are hidden in Christ, Christ is our life, he encourages us to live as if we are in the heavenly realms already. <laughs> this is not easy, is it? As if we're raised up with Christ and to behold him by faith, to fix our gaze on him. This will change us, Paul says, and this is what will fuel our Christian living. This is the engine that will drive us to carry on what Paul now exhorts us to do in the rest of this passage. So Paul has shown us that our life is hidden in Christ. 
he now therefore says in verses 5 to 14 he says if our life is hidden in Christ and we're living in the right place because we now identify with Christ and he's in the heavenly realms we should put on the right clothes that's my second point we should put on or wear the right clothes um, we'll read verses we won't read all that passage but we'll read a part of it put to death therefore verse 5 what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion he says evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry on account of these Paul says the wrath of God is coming in these he says to the Colossians you too once walked when you were living in them but now you must put them all away anger wrath malice slander and obscene talk from your mouth do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which has been renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator here there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised barbarian Scythian slave free but Christ is all and in all Paul says so if our identity is now in Christ then as well as living in the right place we should put on the right clothes the type of clothes that would be worthy for Christ to wear if we have a new life in Christ now we have died to the old self surely we have and this term put away and put on as we'll see in this part of the passage has to do really with clothes we should put away or put to death the old practices and yearn for new ones we have, should have different goals now different dreams and as Michael Reeves says our eyes see differently now our ears listen differently and our mouths speak differently all sinful things have lost their appeal maybe not totally but they have lost their power for sure and like ragged clothes they need to be thrown away five vices Paul says starts us off need to be thrown away he says sexual immorality which kind of refers to any type of sexual sin impurity any kind of moral corruption probably sexual corruption in this in this case passion or lust evil desires this tendency that humans have towards sin anyways and covetousness or some Bibles might say greed sort of an inappropriate desire for more and more and more probably more sexual sin in this particular case Paul says that this will only lead to idolatry Paul might be getting at the idea that to covet or this idea of greed might be the master over the other one and he's probably right um, Paul right through scripture warns us and scripture in the Old Testament as well warns us that sexual sin in particular is to be avoided like the plague we are told in Corinthians I think to flee from it aren't we it has been the downfall of some of the, the most noble and notable figures in the Old Testament it's compared to consuming fire it destroys fellowship it destroys prayer and Bible reading and it always ends up making you selfish always inward-looking ending up living in the wrong place a place where Christ does not live Michael Reeves again commenting on those who look to something other than on Christ to define themselves he says defining themselves by something other than Christ they become something other than Christ ugly the wrath of God Paul says the justified anger and judgment of God will fall on these people 
Uh, but thankfully, the Colossians seem to have mastery over this particular area at the moment, he says, because you're not walking in them as you used to. He then lines up another five vices. It's anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, or dirty talk from your mouth. Christians should avoid unnecessarily critical and abusive speech, one commentary says. Easy to say, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it so easy to say? We're guilty of it most days. But we are getting sensitive to it, and we do find ourselves backing away from it. Maybe our criticism doesn't quite have the same venom that it had before we were Christians. It shouldn't. But we're still guilty of it. Sins of the mouth. James speaks about them. They just trip us up all the time. They just kind of spew out sometimes, like, like water from a leaky tap. We just can't seem to stop it. Someone who has an unnecessarily fiery temple, temper is very unpleasant to see. But if they're a Christian, it's even more. I remember a number of years ago, um, I was driving up to Dublin Airport, and I was on the outside lane coming in to a roundabout, I was in the wrong lane. So I just went over into the inside lane, there wasn't much traffic around, and this car came up behind me like a bullet, slammed on the brakes beside me, it was a taxi, and flashed me. And I must have been daydreaming a bit, I was going a small bit slow, but I was coming into the roundabout and it was uphill, but this guy anyways, whoosh, out into the slow lane, pulled up alongside me, and I could see his face was red, his eyes were black, his hand was white, it was clenched at me, and it kind of broke me out of my revelry. I said to him, how, how come this guy is so worked up about something this silly? Do you know what I did? I waved at him and smiled. He went ballistic. It's a good thing there was no one on the road. He wove and weaved ahead of me, and just in a plume of smoke, he left me for dead. Braked around the roundabout, and I could see him screeching off into the distance. And I was a bit shook after, I was kind of shaking a bit, I was kind of going, gee, it's a good thing I wasn't stopped at the traffic lights. He just seemed to go from naught to 100 in one nanosecond. Um, very unpleasant, very scary if I was living with a guy like that in the house. Um, a, wrathful, a wrathful man, proverb says, is, stirs up discord, but one slow to anger calms strife. Paul says, put them all away now. We have to throw them all out. Throw these rags out, he says. And while you're throwing them out, he says, throw out lying, which is found in verse 9. We don't want lying either, he says. Do you notice the basis, as Paul is writing here, on which we can throw these things out? He says that you have put off your old self with its practices. These are the practices of the old self. And you've put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's the basis of our new identity in Christ, our new life, that we can throw out the old life. See, if our identity is in anything else other than Christ, it will always end in ugliness. For example, if we regard ourselves or our true essence or our true identity as how successful we are in life, if we get success, we'll often become arrogant, short-tempered, judgmental. And the words that come out of our mouth will reflect these. Or say we do get success, or we don't get success, we might become bitter, petty, prickly. And the words coming out of our mouths would reflect this as well. So
So the pursuit or the essence of your identity will always be reflected in the working outs of your mouth. Paul says, no, you're to throw off all these old rags, all these old, old sins that are still clinging to you. Shake them off, he says, and clothe yourselves with a new self, which has been renewed, he says, in knowledge after the image of its creator, being conformed, you see, through the Holy Spirit, through sanctification daily into the image of the Son. These sins of the mouth, of course, they break trust, don't they, between individuals, between us, and we've seen it in our relationships, and on a bigger scale then, they break trust between nations. That's what causes wars, often just silly, petty, ill-spoken, badly-timed words. Paul says here in um, verse 10, note, or verse 11, he says here, in other words, here, when we've, in the new self, when we've thrown away the old self, in the Christian body, the pure Christian body, as the Christian body should look, he says here there is not Jew or Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, uh, barbarian, these were people who, who spoke, he didn't speak classical Greek, they were frowned upon. They, they, to, the, to the Greeks they sounded like they were saying bar, 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 that they were called barbarians. And the Scythians, these were people from the nation of Scythia who were regarded as, as we might say today, oh, he's a bit of a Neanderthal, you know, he's a bit of a, bit of a primitive guy, your man, you know, you don't want to associate with him. So Paul says, no, all of these, all of these um, lookings down, these, these judgmental things are gone. He says, there's no Jew nor Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, he says, but Christ is all in all. Man, we need more of this in the world today, don't we? Uh, looking at what's happening around the world today, um, even just the vitriol and the anger that's to be found on social media. We need this view. We need this view that we are all children of God. We are all made in His image. God, you see, creates a new humanity in the church. And that's what we're looking at today here. We can see people here from various tribes and nations, various interests and ages, but Christ is not asking us to throw away this outer layer of our identity. We're still going to be Irish or English or American or African or women or men but we are all in all, and Christ is all in all. Now, having spoken about the old clothes which are to put off, Paul now turns attention to the new clothes that we should put on, and we find these in verses 12 to 14. He says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, he says, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You know, as Christians, as we behold Christ daily in our Bible reading, in our prayer, in our worship, we behold him by faith. And the more we behold him by faith, the more he stamps his character on us. After all, we are what we look at. He stamps his own character on us. He rubs off on us. The clothes that we should put on are compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Compassion, this idea of love characterized by, by mercy. Kindness is pretty explanatory. Humility, not being too impressed by your own self-importance. Meekness and, and humility are, are pretty much similar there. Patience, an attitude that the Father 
and the Son shared towards sinners, this idea of forgiveness. And then Paul goes on to exhort the Colossians to bear with one another, to reflect the character of God in this area, to forgive like God forgave, um, forgiving 70 times 7, um, withholding your own right um, to delve out or to mete out judgment, responding to good with evil, or sorry, responding to evil with good, should I say. Paul says in 13, bearing with another, and if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other. But overall, Paul says, and above all, put on love. This is the overriding virtue. This is the overcoat on all the other garments, Paul says. And we should love because God's love has been poured into us. And therefore, if God's love has been poured into us, we can pour it out in some small measure onto others, onto a world that needs to know God's love, onto brothers and sisters that need God's love in the present moment. Maybe they're going through trouble and strife. We always, in our Bible readings every day, remind ourselves of God's love. Isn't that what we come to the fountain for? To remind ourselves of God's love and to drink from it richly every morning as we, as we read the Word. And we find when we stay away from the fountain, the things above get a little bit mistier, don't they? The third point I think Paul makes here is, as well as living in the right place and putting on the right clothes, he now says, as Christians who have our identity in Christ, we need to sing the right song. We're a changed people after all. We begin to reflect him, don't we? We delight in the things that God delights in now, his fellowship and his people. The heart of stone that we once had is, is thrown out and we have a new heart, a heart that can sing a new song. Returning to Hebrews 2, verse 12 this time, the verse following the one we read earlier about Christ being our brother. This time, verse 12, we read, this is Christ speaking, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Do you see what's happening there? Christ is our prophet and our king, but he's also our worship leader. He leads in worship. He leads in singing the praises are our praises to the Father, and he reveals the Father to us. Isn't that wonderful? He's our worship leader. Spurgeon says on this, Behold then in your midst, O church of God, in the days of his flesh there stood this glorious one who angels worship, who is the brightness of his Father's glory in the very heaven of heavens. Yet when he stood here, it was to join in the worship of his people, declaring the Father's name unto his brethren, and with them singing praises unto the Most High. Does not this bring him very near to you? Does it not seem as if he might come at any moment and sit in that pew with you? I feel as if already he stood on this platform side by side with me. Why should he not? Psalm 96 speaks about this as well. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the, long, the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. Jew and Scythian. Greek. Slave. Free. All among the nations. His marvelous works amongst all the people. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. With a small g. Watch out, false teachers of Colossae. 
For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. We live in the sanctuary. And so Paul now exhorts his brothers to sing the right song, a song which is sincere and heartfelt. He writes in verses 15 to 17, he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, Paul says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, Paul's concern here is still the church. Just as he said, put off these, put on these, he's now looking at the church. Of course, he always has been looking at the church. Um, but his concern is the unity of the church. <clears throat> so he exhorts us in verse 15 that the peace of Christ should act as should act as sort of an umpire or a referee amongst the body, that we should seek to have good relationships with those around us, but in particular, that we should seek to have good relationships with those that are within the body, in the members of the church, for the glory of God. This peace of Christ should be the referee that kind of sorts out tensions between members in the church. Um, that this peace of God shouldn't be walked on or dismissed or taken frivolously. That it should always be in the center of our mind when we're playing out disputes or tensions between brothers and sisters. The peace of Christ, he says, should be in our hearts. And one translation, I forget what translation it was, um, according to the experts best brought forward the, the kind of the flavor of this the second part of that verse, the peace of Christ should reign in our hearts, and the best translation seems to be through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, through the singing, with thankfulness in your heart to God. So finally, Paul draws our attention to the fact that everything, including what we do, what we say, everything in a sense should be a form of worship, singing our praises and thanks to God through Jesus thanking him for sending his son onto the cross to die for our sins so that the just died for the unjust and we who are dirty and soiled can now be made pure, can now live in a right place, wear the right clothes and sing the right song. So how might this passage of his letter help the Colossians? We haven't spoken an awful lot about this false teaching yet to withstand the false teachers and their seductive teaching. How might this passage help us? Because these seductive teachings have not gone away. I was just Googling one of the big bookshops in Galway the last day, and um, I was looking at spiritual book titles. There's some pretty strange stuff there. Um, crystals, unicorns, angels, how to be a Buddhist millionaire. That doesn't make an awful lot of sense. There was a lot of strange stuff there. These, these things have not gone away. In fact, they're more readily available now to someone who's seeking than they were maybe in Paul's day. They're there at the click of a button. 
But Paul, in summary, has told them to live out their identity in Christ. He says that he is sufficient. He says that he is their life. And he also says they don't have to be taken in by these seductive teachings, these promisings of hidden and secret knowledge. They have the word of Christ dwelling within them, as we just saw. In fact, they're told to teach and admonish one another. One another. The normal body of the church. Not some overlord or overseer teaching and admonishing them. They're to teach and admonish one another. The second thing they might draw from Paul's letter is they don't have to be tempted by the smells and bells and ceremonies of the earthly rulers. They don't have to be tempted by or taken in by the rules of the false teachers. We all love rules, don't we? Christ is the priest, Paul has said, leading in worship. And the final good thing they might bring from this is they don't have to be taken in by angels and philosophies which bring Christ down and don't elevate up Christ to his rightful spot as God, as creator, supreme creator, as that wonderful hymn in verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1 of Colossians. You should read it when you go home. Paul lays out all the things that Christ is. It's the very image of God. No, Paul says Christ is enough. Christ should be our life. He's the ultimate reality. Christ said in Matthew 6.21, he says, for where your heart is, there will be your treasure also. What's your treasure? What do you gaze at? Is it Christ? He's worthy of it. Let's pray. Um, Father God, it's easy to read these words and say, Amen. But would you help us to live out these words? Would you help us to set in place some maybe boundaries in our lives where we can spend more time gazing on you? Um, and to commit to that, knowing full well that when we gaze on you, we will become more like you. Father, we pray these things that you may bring them about. We seek your help in this area, Lord, because you know what? We are still not glorified fully. And we struggle with earthly things. And we need your help. Thank you, Lord. Amen.